And so today we will be considering John chapter 6, verses 22 through 41. I'm going to read through verse 41, but let's understand that just prior to what we're reading, the event that took place was Jesus famously walking on the water. The disciples had gotten into a boat and uh, were traveling across the Sea of Galilee, and a tempest, a storm blew up and They became terribly afraid, and most of us know the account of Jesus walking out to them to calm them and the storm. And so, verse 22 of chapter 6 picks up here. I'm reading from the ESV translation. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. Now let me stop here. I've said this before. The the truly, truly part is... The, the ancient text way of using bold fonts or underlining or exclamation points. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the good works of God? Or or doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, and notice here it is again, this uh, double wording emphasis, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall no lot, not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have Ionion Zoe, Zoe Ionios, life eternal, age-enduring life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And there ends the reading of God's infallible word. The priority of God's decree. Some years ago, Dr. R.C. Sproul told the story of a letter that he had received from a reader regarding Table Talk magazine. It was from a woman who said that she had been a subscriber to Table Talk for many years and had been reading diligently through the daily devotions. However, 
she was writing in to cancel her subscription. The devotions for that particular year and those months were based on a commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans by the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. The woman went on to say in her letter that she had read several of those devotions covering the doctrine of predestination. And she said, and I'm quoting her, I will no longer read this magazine because I don't believe in predestination. End of quote. Dr. Sproul commented that he was sorry to hear she was canceling her subscription, but he was glad she didn't say that she no longer read Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, before we come to a truly biblical understanding of who God is and what his grace is all about, some of us carry around in our minds false notions about God's grace and God's sovereignty. And one of the most prevalent is that if we just do enough good things, then God is thereby obligated to repay us with his blessings. Now, in his dialogue here, Jesus addresses those false assumptions, and his words are a challenge to any who wrongly believe that the key to the blessings of God lie ultimately within their power. And to follow up on a topic that we discussed from these verses or these chapters some weeks ago, this idea that the key to the blessings of God are ultimately with our, our power, that is another form of magic. You remember that sermon, that study we did? You know, magic is the humanistic aspiration, the fallen man in the garden aspiration to aspire to be God, to control everything. It's not just pulling a rabbit out of your hat. Magic, in its classical sense, is a worldview a non-biblical worldview. Now here in verses 22 to 25, some of the crowd of 5,000 that he'd fed, well, they realized that Jesus' disciples got into a boat and they headed for Capernaum. Now, the text tells us that those people were also well aware that Jesus had not crossed over with his disciples, so they are naturally curious about how he got there. Now, if you didn't know any better, You'd think that those people just crossed over the lake and got out of their boats, and there's Jesus standing there waiting for them, and, and then this dialogue is what followed. But that's not exactly how it happened. And we know that from reading the verse 59, if you want to just look down to verse 59 of this chapter, it reads, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And that, you see, refers to all of this discussion contained in verses 26 to 58. So those people have asked Jesus a question about how he got over there, and now just look at how he answered them in verses 26 and 27. I'll read it again. He says, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he's pointing out here, let me just stop and say, it's not even the signs and wonders that has caused them to find out more about him or ask, but it's the fact that they had a good meal. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, I think there are roughly three or four points that we can deduce from these verses for us and our benefit today and also in understanding the text. Here is the first one. There are people who seek Jesus 
for the wrong reasons. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about one of those wrong reasons. But here, broadly speaking, there are people who seek Jesus, who are interested in him, but for the wrong motivation. The motives of that particular crowd were even more selfish than that of the people in Jerusalem, where he had worked a sign and wonder. Jesus accuses them of only being interested in him because of their getting their stomachs filled with food. Then in verse 27, he uses language that he used similarly with the Samaritan woman at the well. There he talked about living water. Here he talks of food that never perishes. Now notice what he says to them. He tells them, do not labor for the food which perishes. Now, if you think about it, him telling them, do not labor, that's something that none of us today, at least many of us, would not automatically understand. Because we don't automatically connect food with labor because, generally speaking, I know there's exceptions. I mean, there's some of us in here that have food gardens and that kind of thing. But generally speaking, we don't labor in a direct way to have our food. We go to the grocery store and we just buy it and there it is. Most of those people, however, had to literally labor for their food, or many of them did, and they had to plant it, cultivate it, grow it, and harvest it, or in the case of livestock, raise it and kill it and eat it. But even those people, they did not really understand what he's telling them. His point to them, and frankly, I believe the point to us today, is not to focus on the nature of our work, but on what is an appropriate goal for our lives. Jesus was telling those people that living life for only the material things, like getting your belly full, is not what we are put on this earth to do. And their response to Jesus, that then brings us to the second point, and that is there are people who not only seek Jesus for the wrong reasons, but they think that somehow they can work their way into eternal life or abundant life. So those people are asking Jesus, tell us what works God requires, and we'll go out and do them. And in this, they, like people of every culture who think like them, show how profoundly uninformed they are about who God is and what he requires. They think they have some inborn ability to meet any challenge that God may set before them. And they show no awareness that eternal life is foremost a gift bestowed only by the grace and mercy of Almighty God. And the Lord Jesus apparently here wastes no time in setting those people straight. God requires faith, or we may say belief, in Him whom the Lord has sent, meaning Jesus the Christ Himself. Now, frankly, that is really nothing new in God's program, and those people should have known it. Because he has always required faith from his people. Man is the one who has tried to devise other means of reaching into the heavens of glory by doing so-called good works. Now, when Jesus tells them that they must believe in him whom God has sent to the, to the crowd at the synagogue, they fully understand that he's talking about himself. And so, in verses 30 to 31, we then move on to the third point of the message. And this is where I'm going to give an example of, of, of what people try to do in, in seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. They are interested in him, this is the third point, but only on their terms. That's one false motivation. I'll pursue Jesus, but only if it meets my conditions. 
Notice the challenge they direct to Jesus. If you are the Messiah, then you give us some sign to prove it. Now, if you stop and think about that a moment, you would think that feeding a multitude of 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish, that might just be sign enough. That might be enough of a miracle. But to those people, to these Jews in the synagogue, that was only the beginning of what they were expecting from the Messiah. Now, if you, if you look back up at verse 14, just right here in John chapter 6, if you look up at verse 14, we read, Then those men, when they had seen the sign Jesus did, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So, in saying that, they had something very specific in mind. Because in Deuteronomy 28, 15, Moses had foretold long ago, and I'm reading this one from the New King James Version, The Lord Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So those people understood that to mean that a new Moses would come in the last days. And they understood that when the Messiah came, it was the last day. Let me just stop for a moment and parenthetically add here, this is another area where people who don't understand the preteristic nature of New Testament prophecy, this is another place where they completely go off the rails. They think any time they see the words last days refers to what is biblically called the final advent or the second coming of Christ. That is simply not the case. You've got to be careful in understanding the last days here in this case means the last days of the old covenant age. They understood that when the Messiah came, it's a game changer. Everything changes because the kingdom of God has finally come. And so that's what they're thinking about. They knew that then when the new Moses came, he would perform great signs and wonders and lead them on a great conquest over their enemies. That was their expectation. It had a political, physical element to it. So they fully expected that anyone who claimed to be the Messiah must surely be a man of numerous miracles and great signs and wonders. And they were not interested in him if he did not meet their preconceived notion about what he ought to do. Okay, you can turn a few fish and bread into a lot more food, but let's get on with wiping out all these Gentiles and these Romans and conquering you know, this, this land of ours so we can set up our Davidic kingdom once again. Now, those people were not altogether mistaken in believing the Messiah would indeed be a new Moses in some sense. Like Moses, Jesus brings the people of God out of bondage. He leads us in an exodus from being bound by sin, he very definitely connected himself and his ministry with Moses. But Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that which Moses was only a, a forerunner, a, a type, a symbol. And that is why he himself reminds them in verses 32 to 36 here that it is God, not Moses, who is the author of their salvation. The one who provides the bread of eternal life. Now, Moses' life and ministry was restricted to the Old Covenant age and to the Old Testament nation of Israel. But unlike the Old Covenant church, which had Moses as its head, the New Covenant church, the New Israel, has Christ the Savior at it as its head. And its members, the members of the New Israel, the New Covenant, are drawn from every race and tribe on earth, and they are tied together through the covenant bond which is sealed in Christ Jesus. 
And let me just say, and you think about what I'm saying, especially in light of current events, anyone who claims to be an Israelite, anyone who claims to be the people of God, the chosen people of God, or whatever terminology it may be, if they do not have Christ the Savior as the head of the nation, of the people, of the church, they are not true Israelites. You cannot deny the covenant of God and expect to remain in the covenant. You cannot deny what God says you must have in order to be his people and then falsely claim that you are nonetheless. In verses 37 to 40, Jesus returns to a theme that has been a cornerstone of his redemptive work from the very beginning. That is the sovereign grace of God in saving and redeeming and electing and choosing a people to himself. And this then is the final point. And it is that the, the faith that we must have. He requires faith of us. But the final point is the faith, that, the faith that we must have is a gift bestowed on us by God himself. Look again at verse 37. Jesus declares with absolute certainty, and this is from the ESV, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And notice, please, that this is from the mouth of the divine Son of God himself, that, that we are taught this great truth about how God chooses and delivers his people. Before we go any further with this, though, I, I want to ask you to remember what we had already learned and read about this whole business of God's sovereignty and salvation and redemption in way back in chapter 1. In John chapter 1, I'll read it again, reading from the New King James Version, verses 12 to 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then... John 5, verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son of Man gives life to whom He will. Now here in chapter 6, at this verse 37, we have both the consolation and the challenge of the great biblical doctrine of unconditional election. Now I say it as a challenge, like the woman who canceled her table talk subscription, it's a challenge to all who believe that human beings are autonomous. They are a law unto themselves. They are self-sufficient, and they're able to do whatever they need to get done, including, if I want to believe in Jesus, I'll just haul off and believe in him. If I don't, no problem. I'm not going to do that either. But the idea that God is the one who chooses those whom are appointed unto salvation there are people who are very uncomfortable with that idea. Again, like the, the woman with the table talk subscription. But the Bible declares that we all are born into this world dead in our trespasses and sins. And without the intervening grace of God, we are simply unable to come to him of our own will that we might have age enduring life everlasting. So this is the challenge that Jesus' teaching poses for some people. He stresses the priority of God in all areas of life, including the means by which we are saved and who in the long run becomes saved or redeemed. Notice what he says again. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So the Father gives some to his Son, but those 
others are passed over. Now, we happen to believe, most of us in this room, that on the day that Christ returns in his final advent, he will return to a Christian world. And that the number of those whom the Father gives to the Son far outnumber those who are passed over. So there's no reason for pessimism in any of this. Now I know that there are at least some people here today, because of this discussion, you may be wondering to yourself, am I among the elect? Am I one of those whom the Father in heaven has given to Christ? That's certainly an important question to ask. A lot hangs on that question, doesn't it? But I can assure you, it is an easy question to answer. Jesus declares that anyone who comes to him will by no means, will certainly not be cast out or turned away. So let's ask ourselves today. Let you ask yourself, I ask myself, do we have faith in Christ alone as our Lord and Savior and King? I mean, if we can answer yes to that question, then that is the unimpeachable evidence that we are in Christ. Our faith Our very faith is the evidence that God has given us to him. Jesus says, And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast aside. So even though God is sovereign in salvation, or maybe a better way to put it, because God is sovereign in salvation, man still is responsible. Human beings are still responsible for what they do or don't do. And if we would be a follower of Jesus, we must come to him in and by faith. And believing on his name, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins, Jesus says that we will never, ever be lost. We will, in the end, be raised up to new life with him on the last day. As the Catechism says, we will persevere therein to the end. Now that is a blessed assurance. Because we would be, of all people, most miserable if our position in Christ was based on our changing moods and whims and sinful lives. But praise God, it is Christ who saves us. It is God himself who gives us the very faith that we need to believe in him. It is God himself who has appointed us to this salvation. And it is the Holy Spirit living in our hearts that causes us to persevere in this faith to the end that on the last day we will be and are raised up with him in age-enduring life. Let us pray.